Transparency helps account executives sell more. Welcome to the Work Before the Work podcast for account executives, SDRs, and sales professionals looking to prospect better, sell more, and get promoted faster. I'm Paul M. Caffrey, co-author of The Work Before the Work, and in each episode, we deconstruct the hidden habits elite sales professionals use to outperform the competition. Please share and enjoy. Hello and welcome along to the first episode of the Work Before the Work podcast. I'm delighted that you're here. I'm Paul M. Caffrey and today we've got a real real treat in store. We've got Todd Capone joining us. Todd is a seven-time sales leader. He's a two-times bestseller for the Transparency Sale and most recently the Transparent Sales Leader. We dig into both of those books in great detail. And he's also a keynote keynote speaker and a member of the National Speakers Association. And Todd drops a lot of knowledge in this episode, which is really applicable for account executives. We speak about prospecting, we speak about selling, and we also speak about how to get ahead when it comes to advancing your career. From a prospecting perspective, you know, Todd shares how you can actually stand out among the noise in people's inboxes using tactical empathy. And then from a negotiation standpoint, and uh, take into mind that Todd has taught sales teams from the likes of Adobe, Salesforce, LinkedIn, and a whole host of SaaS companies that you've definitely heard of. Well, he shares the four levers that you need to actually negotiate and how you can position them in such a way that brings transparency to both sides of the table to make it easier for you to actually forecast. And the proof is in the pudding. Todd not only is a stellar record of forecasting his own business, but as a sales leader and carrying hundreds of AEs, he's been in the position of having six quarters in a row where he has been within 3% of his actual forecasted number. And we're talking about big sales numbers here. So this is going to be a great show. I'm delighted to kick things off with Todd and I've actually put him to the top of the bill because I was so impressed with the show itself and really really looking forward to getting your feedback on this oh and one more thing if you're an account executive and you're looking to 5x your pipeline let's brainstorm a plan go to paulcaffrey.com forward slash brainstorm and let's put some time in the diary and actually build out a plan that is going to help you hit that 5x number to make your year really successful so without further ado let's get started And as I mentioned, I'm delighted to be joined by Todd Capone. Todd, how are you doing? I'm really good. How are you? Really good as well, actually. I'm very excited for this conversation. Uh, what I like is this is going to be somewhat unscripted. So we're free to talk, go anywhere, talk about anything. But we will have to talk about your great new book because it is so good. Well, thank you. Thank you. So I, as we were kind of doing the little prep, um, I don't know how much you know, Paul, about my nerdery. I, I joke my nerdery knows no bounds. But when cool people are doing cool things on the weekends, you'll find me in a late 1800s or early 1900s book or magazine on the history of sales, on the yep. sales management. You know, I've, I'm building almost like a little collection. You know, I've got books here from the, the 1910s. Uh, this book smells like your grandma's basement. Uh, it's from 1916. Oh, wow. It is freaking amazing um, from Orison Sweat Martin. But um, here's the, the thing. You know, as we talk about what's going on from a macroeconomic perspective, one of the things that I can't believe, and it blew my mind, was that what we're experiencing right now in our economy, we have experienced this exact same thing 101 years ago. What no. I, it's pretty oh, amazing. And I am aware of your, um, I guess, a fascination, respect, growing collection of classic sales books. So I think most people are going to be surprised to hear you say this has happened before. Yeah, it's amazing that history repeats itself. And when we look at the circumstances that we're in right now, you know, people talk about, well, we've had recessions before. Well, this one doesn't look like the normal recession. And what I mean by that is if we go back to the 1910s, first of all, the profession of sales was not only trusted and respected, it was actually admired. Sales was taught at every university in the early 1900s. 
uh, especially here in the U.S. And then it was even being taught in public high schools uh, back in the 1910s. It was that popular. What happened when you look at like 1914 through 1917, you had a period of slow, steady economic growth. We were in what's called the progressive era of the Industrial Revolution. So we were really getting the wheels of manufacturing going. And then what happened in 1917, 1918? World War I. It shut down the economy. It set the pendulum swinging, right? So slow and steady growth, 1914 to 1917, looked a lot like 2017 to 2020. And then you shut down the economy. World War I was the case back then. And oh, by the way, they had the Spanish flu too, but it didn't seem like anybody cared, which is weird. But um, we had COVID in March of 2020 shut down the economy, set the pendulum swinging. What ends up happening is when we came out of that, the war ends, all of a sudden the economy shoots up like a rocket. Very similar to late 2020 through 2021 into early 2022. The economy fires up through uh, 1919 into early 20 or 1920. And then guess what happened? An inflation spike. Oh, who knew? Back then, they were calling it catastrophic, and we had the same exact inflation spike here. Oh, no, by the way, during that rise up, they had something that they could have called the Great Resignation, where reps were changing okay. jobs uh, because you know lots of voluntary turnover, because there was more money to be had, and even the crappy reps were able to find more jobs for more money. So they were bouncing all over the place. Inflation goes up, bottom drops out. In 1921, Salesperson turnover was 77%. And in 1922, it was 85%. That organizations were practically purging their entire sales organizations. And so I was looking at this. And so, you know, my shameless self back padding, I predicted the great resignation based on that story. And then said, hey, everybody, this purge is coming. Like, beware. Like, you know, I was kind of ringing the bell. You hear you, hear you. And and sure enough, and so I'd, I'd written an article in early February 2022 warning people, and everybody was like, ah, oh, there's too much private equity dry powder. It's not going to happen. It, it did happen, right? And so here we are. That The good news is when you look at how long it took to recover in 1922, we're kind of right on the edge of that now in 2023 going into 2024. Yeah. And we can start to see, and so Paul, you and I were talking before that we're starting to see investment come up again. We're hoping. Yeah, absolutely. The economy will recover. It always does. But the other issue though, for everybody to think about is we will make the same mistakes again. We will go back to revenue at all costs. We do it all over again. If you think to the the 1920s, what happened in the end of the 1920s? Well, I was about to say, uh, we're, we're, ha- we're going to go off a cliff then at some point in the not too distant future. I hope we're smart <laughs> enough to avoid that. But sorry for that rant. I just found it yeah. to be so fascinating. But the yeah. good news is for everybody, just prepare. There's going to be smart, steady growth ahead. There always is. But this one was different because it set that pendulum swinging and the pendulum will start to slow down and we're going to start to see the growth. The question is when, but it's probably yeah. pretty soon. And it, it's it's super interesting. And I, I get like the conversation we were having before I was mentioning, I was working with a few founders, very seed and early stage, who have had access to money easier recently than they have maybe in, in the months before. And also in some of the ambitious account executives that I'm coaching, I'm seeing that it's uh, the thoughts are back to, well, how can I maximize and exceed my targets? And how can I actually get that promotion I want next year, as opposed yeah. to, in the last couple of years, how can I do enough prospecting to keep people off my back to make sure I'm not the one who's affected by a layoff? So uh, I do do see that, do definitely see that shift. Um, and I guess probably like one one of the things that jumped out at me, and um, as I said, we'll probably jump all over the place here in this show, uh, but it was uh, when I was going through uh, your new book, The Transparent Sales Leader, uh, it was the fact that you did six quarters in a row where you were able to get your forecasts accurate within 3%, give or take. I, th- I think that was the margin you mentioned, yeah. which just hit me because, you know, account executives for uh, sales managers, even for founders in the early stage, even, you know, Series A stage, forecasting is so challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, here's the question everyone's wondering. 
How did you do that, Todd? <laughs> yeah, and so part of it's luck. Like, I mean, there, there's got to be a little bit of luck. I mean, there was one quarter where my 90-day forecast, I was within like 12,000, and it was a you know, seven, eight-figure forecast. It was crazy. Oh, wow. And, yeah, and that's, yeah, yeah. Like, that's luck. But here for everybody, I just want you to think for a second about this. It, reading these old books and these old magazines, the problems that they experienced 100, 110, 120 years ago were exactly the same that we have today, right? The, the problems were almost exactly the same. However, there was one thing that I noticed. Sales leaders back then and organization leaders were not complaining about forecast accuracy. And I'm looking at that thinking, well, why not? What is it? And I think I put my finger on it. And it's based, the, it's the, the concept that you can absolutely apply today. And it was what we used in my last role as the chief revenue officer of a tech company here in Chicago. I, I don't know like if any of the, the listeners are old enough to remember the movie, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Uh, but if you don't, go to YouTube and just look up the, there's a rant that yeah. Alec Baldwin, who plays Blake from Mitch and Murray, goes on. It's berating. You'll cry yourself to sleep after watching it. But he's got on his chalkboard ABC, which is always be closing. Gross. But he also has something called AIDA on it. That's actually one thing that he got right. And AIDA, it stands for attention, meaning is the customer paying attention? Do we have their attention? Yeah. I is interest. Have we generated an interest from them in what we're talking about, what we're selling? The D is desire. Alec had it wrong. He had decision. It was actually desire. Have we generated a desire within the individual for our solutions? And then the last A is action, meaning are they committed to taking action and actually acquiring whatever I'm selling? The reason I bring that up, AIDA, that was actually first theorized in 1898 by a guy named Elias St. Omo Lewis. And it became the foundation for every sales process and every sales forecasting methodology. Now, why is that significant? Well, think about it. AIDA is about recognizing buyer behavior. It's about creating a, a process that the sales reps get their endorphin rushes from watching the words and actions of the buyer instead of what they're doing. Right. And that AIDA was every, every book. I can yeah. point to 10 different books that actually have chapters on it going AIDA. There was a guy in 1925, uh, Elmer Ellsworth Ferris, who said, um, I'm not going to talk about it because we all know it's AIDA. Now, if you fast forward to the 1990s, where Salesforce comes along and Siebel and HubSpot, the out of the box sales processes are all seller centric, aren't they? Right, our processes yeah. are you know yeah. qualification, discovery, propose, yeah. demo, negotiate. We get our endorphin rushes from that. No wonder we have such a hard time predicting when we're predicting basing on what we're doing instead of systemically encouraging and driving all of our processes around buying yeah. behavior and recognizing it. So I I'm not suggesting we bring back AIDA. All we did, Paul, was we looked at our sales process. We weren't going to change the stages in Salesforce that my sales ops person would have, you know, gone crazy. Yeah, yeah, very difficult. Yeah, all we did is you can look at your stages and just layer over the top kind of the modernized version of this, which is all buyers go through three stages, right? Yeah. Stage one is a commitment to change. So why change? Why, like, have they, through the words and actions, recognized that, they should be doing something different tomorrow than they're doing today. And then once they go, yeah, I got to do something. Stage two is why you? So why your company versus the other alternatives and the options and other places they should be spending their time, resources, and money. But once they say, yes, Paul, it's you. We're going forward. It now becomes why now, right? Yeah. Like, why are we going to do this now versus I've got a mm hundred -hmm. priorities. I can only focus on five. Why am I going to do this now versus later? It's very easy. You'll see that when you do that, you layer it over the stages. It, most companies, it fits in very nicely. But then you've got to teach all of your leaders to make sure that you're managing to that and not, hey, we sent a proposal, so it should be at 50%. Now, yeah. that's got nothing to do with a 50-50 deal. But what does have a lot more to do with a 50-50 deal is the client telling us, hey, listen, it's between you and X. 
and we are yeah. doing these steps and we've got a close plan in place, right? So the, the short story is instead of basing okay. your forecast on recognizing seller behavior, if we just flip it and start to recognize buyer behavior and get all of our endorsement rushes from there, we will not only have a better relationship with our clients, but we will be able to predict the future much more accurately. And that's what we did. Wow, amazing. And what I really like about that, Todd, and I, um, well, John Barrow, he would he speaks about this a lot as well. You know, so it is, you know, still, still out there uh, in the sphere. A lot of people tend to think of it from a prospecting lens. And that's where we would tend to hear this in the organization, maybe in the, in the SDR org as, as opposed to the sales org. Um, but I, what I really like there is if you take what you've just said and it makes perfect sense. And as you hear it, you're kind of thinking, well, why wasn't I doing this all the time? That that sounds like I should be. Um, but pick a couple of your deals that you're working on right now and actually ask yourself those questions. Or if you're managing a team, um, that, that is a really nice way because that's going to expose areas where the deal is weak or where the deal is maybe strong in one part, but there's a gap somewhere else that you can actually do something with versus uh, they're 50% through our, our sales process. Do they know that? I mean, so often people are, you know, they've agreed to a next meeting and they don't realize there may be 75% along the way of getting to making a decision with you. Um, when you uh, when you speak about plans and close plans, um, at what point do you encourage your reps or your sales people to uh, be transparent and, and show that with, with customers, with prospects? I think, you know, the, the analogy that I always make is like, imagine that you're going to go climb Mount Everest, right? And like, you're nervous. You don't know what's going on. It's just like a, like a life-changing event. You show up and there's a Sherpa there and the Sherpa is like, hey, nice to meet you. It's a big mountain. What, what, mm. How do you guys want to go? Like, I just, you know, I'll follow your lead. You'd be like, <laughs> we're all going to die, right? Now, yeah. the, the reason that I bring that up is that you know, our role as sales professionals, we always talk about like, you know, consensus selling is hard. Oh, it's really hard. We got to build all this, you know, a consensus and sure it's hard. It, it is, but we've got to know that consensus buying is infinitely harder knowing that these buyers have never probably bought a solution like ours before. If they have, maybe they've done it once or twice. And as a salesperson, you've got a whole team, you got like podcasts like this, to help you be a better salesperson, buyers don't. Like buyers don't have processes. They haven't gone to training to figure out how to buy. I, I believe there's a there's a couple of little mini rants in here for you, and I'm I'm trying to control myself because there's so much I want to oh, share. Let loose, you know, say whatever. See <laughs> what it's all yeah. about. It, it's you know, it, it goes back again. I keep injecting a little history, but you know, buyers know more nowadays, right? Like they know, like they, you hear that yep. phrase, "buyers know more." Would it surprise you to hear that those four words are actually from Thomas Herbert Russell's 1912 book, Salesmanship, right? Where there was a time um, yes, where they were worried about the proliferation of advertising and mail order catalogs were going to render the profession of salespeople useless, right? Like, what do we need salespeople for? We can just go buy anything. I've got a catalog down here. This is the 1908 Sears Roebuck catalog, right? And in it, you can buy everything from human hair to a house, right? Like, so <laughs> what, what, like, what do I need salespeople for? You look and go, all right, what happened? Well, the sales profession still flourished. You, you fast forward to 2015. Forrester, in their kind of sale, uh, state of sales report, they had issued this warning that a million B2B sales jobs would go away by 2020 because of the rise of e-commerce. What would we need salespeople for? I'd argue, like, obviously, that didn't happen. Obviously, the sales profession flourished. It yep. didn't, the million people didn't stop selling. And in that article, it said hundreds of thousands of college students wouldn't graduate into the profession because there wouldn't be a need. Well, the reason the opposite happened is more information hasn't made it easier on buyers. It's made it harder. And I believe that our, the role of our profession, its original design back in the 1910s was to be a service profession. This guy named Arthur Sheldon in his 1911 book, The Art of Selling, that said, true salesmanship is the science of service. Grasp that thought firmly and never let go, right? It's one of my favorite sales quotes of all time. To go back to your question, 
I believe that our role is to be a service professional. And our role is to be that Sherpa for the buyer to help them. They got a hundred problems they could solve for, but only the ability to solve for maybe five at a time. And if we're not looking at our lens of being, hey, listen, Mr. and Mrs. Customer, like, here's the, the steps that we see companies like you needing to go through. Here's some of the risks. Here's some of the things that take them off the path. Um, I, I've laid those out for you. Can we go through this together? And it, does this look like yours? Is there something that maybe we should dig into? And if this looks like a journey you're not wanting to take, that's cool too. Let's address that up front. Because again, the most valuable thing you have to turn to revenue is your time, right? Yeah. Lose fast if you're going to lose. So I'm an advocate for having that conversation right out of the gate to set that journey expectation. And then especially after they say yes, to do mutual alignment around the timing of this thing so that you can predict not only for your forecast, but for your resources, and you can help them get to their outcomes at the optimal time too. So it's a long way of saying yeah. our job is to be a Sherpa to the buyer, to be a service professional. And that includes helping them predict and making the job of consensus buying easier for them because they probably don't know how to do it. Yeah. And there's so much in that that we could dig into and unpack. Um, I mean, look, obviously with your Salesforce background, I've you know spent a good bit of time there. I remember the one thing that jumped out at me when I went in first was, um, there was nearly a celebration if you lost the deal fast. We're all in or we're moving on. Uh, and again, a lot of people maybe shy away and want to keep that big pipeline because it makes them feel good. Um, but what I really like, and I just want to highlight this for anyone listening, account executives or leaders, is that calling out what part of your sales process is going to be tough for the buyer. So maybe they have got to get buy-in from other parts of the company. They've got to you know, the company could have a hundred fires to put out and theirs might be the biggest one in, in their world that you're speaking to. However, maybe not in the company's world. So there's all these other things you need to be aware of. Calling out that, you know, we could get a month into this and, and this is where it might fall down because we haven't involved these stakeholders early or insert whatever that might be. Um, and I like the way you're using the word sales professional. Professional will signpost these things. And then when it comes along, you can be like, remember that thing we spoke about? Well, we talked about doing this. If it happened, it's happened. So yes. as opposed to, I need to get access to this person. Can you intro me? And, and then, well, you're a bit, bit late in the process. Well, well um, Paul, can I jump in? Because there, there was two things you just highlighted that I just want to hmm. call out. Number one is like, how do you figure out what those friction points are? And back to your question about creating an accurate forecast. Just a quick story. Uh, when I took my last CRO role, I got there, there was this prevailing philosophy that was handed down by the CEO that when a deal was lost by a rep, they would go into the sales force and they would move it to close loss. And everybody on the executive team would get an email notification, right? So you lost a deal, yep. you'd have to move it to close loss. And then the CEO would come working out like, hey, what happened? It sounds like you got outsold, right? And so reps subconsciously even, obviously consciously, but subconsciously don't want that pressure. And so a couple of things would happen. When we would lose a deal when I got there, I was noticing the reps were either moving the closed date way out or they were suddenly yep. moving the deal to an unqualified state. They were not going to put it to close loss. And if they did, and somebody came out and asked them what happened, the rep, their mind would configure an argument that it was the customer's fault. It was always the customer's fault. And as a result, you end up with an inaccurate forecast, but even worse, you end up losing for the same reason over and over again. So I did something kind of crazy because I am obviously a bit crazy. But uh, when I got there and it was something that my CEO, he still, I think, is angry at me about. But now that he saw the results, he got over it. Um, we had a rep working a big deal. He lost it. And so I had them come into the office on a Friday. We brought in little plastic uh, champagne flutes. We bought champagne. We did a, a champagne toast to the loss because I wanted to change us from you get stoned for losing a deal to let's celebrate losing a deal. You're already getting hit in the pocket. You're already getting hit your code attainment. Let's celebrate not only the effort, but most importantly, we had to create an environment where losing was cool and sharing yeah. the reasons that you lost was even more important and doing it transparently, meaning 
If it was something you missed, something you wish you would have asked earlier, something you wish you would have seen that we're exposing that and celebrating it versus going, how did, were you an idiot? Right. And so as a result, we would, we started to lose faster, which was great. Yeah. But most importantly, we weren't losing for the same reason over and over again and not knowing it. And the third piece was we would tie those reasons to circumstance type, maybe vertical type, maybe firmographic type. So we could start to see not only where along the process this was happening, but are there trends that we can apply to our current pipeline so that we can do what you just said, to walk in with the customer early and go, hey, listen, as we're working with companies like you, they're getting stuck right here. And here's why. If you see that as being a potential roadblock, let's talk about that now versus two months from now when we get to it and see if we can avoid that. And if we don't think we're going to be able to avoid that, that's cool too. You know, I wish you the best of luck and, you know, hopefully we can work yeah, together yeah. again in the future. I know that's hard for a sales rep to think because they've got revenue right in front of them and they can't let go. Yes, but exactly. I think what we, what we tend to find is if we actually look into it, instead of putting that deal in as a, it's a Q4 or it's a yeah, fast start, we'll put it in for the start of the next FY, where it gets parked, forgotten about, and then it's handed over as closed loss. Yes. It's never really analyzed. It just becomes wasted data. You mentioned firmographics, demographics. You're probably more often than not, you're going to find that they maybe showed interest in us or maybe we outbound it to them because they were a great logo, but they maybe didn't fit our ideal client. And there were maybe a few too many parts missing. And I guess, as you say, yeah, wasting resource going after that again and again. Very easy to do and very hard to actually say no to that. Exactly. We'll it's hard. In pipeline. So yeah, yeah, boom, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, it, the other piece of that is, you know, you had mentioned about holding on to pipeline too long too. And that was something I did wrong as a leader. You know, I used to be like, I was brought up in that world where it was like, Hey, my team, and actually myself as a rep, when I was growing up was, Hey, you got to have four X your quota in pipeline at all times. Why don't you have that Paul? Like, you know, there, that kind of discussion. And as a result, yep. like, what did I do as a rep? I kept my pipeline full to 4X, right? Filled with crap. I, I just believe with all the data points like that, that you hear about the 4X, your quota, uh, the, the one that drives me crazy right now is when I hear about, uh, you know, for you to reach an executive to connect, it takes nine touches to do it. So why are you stopping at five? You need to add four. I'm like, that's the dumbest freaking thing I've heard in my whole life. That the 4X quota thing, we should instead be asking, does it need to be 4X? You know, could we do a better job of qualifying out early and making sure that we're spending on our, our time with the opportunities we should win yeah. by embracing transparency in this whole process so that we could get that down to 2X and win 50% of them? Or if we had 4X, we're going to do 200% of our number because we're so efficient. That's fantastic. The same thing with the, the touches. It, you know, the, when I see that data point of nine, I saw another data point that said it was 18. I'm like, we need to add 15. Like, stop it. Why aren't we looking and going, why is it taking 18? Why is our message so repelling that after the 18th time, they're like, oh, make it stop. I'll finally respond. <laughs> you know, can't yeah, we yeah. get smarter and have more empathy for the people that we're reaching out to so that we can do it at four or five, right? Or two or three. I, I just think that when we look at metrics the wrong way and then we focus our management efforts, we are systemically causing inaccurate forecasts and we are systemically causing our reps to be inefficient with, again, the most valuable yeah. resource they have, which is their time. Yeah, absolutely. And what's interesting about that is you'll see it, um, more tenured sales leaders, sometimes more tenured sales organizations may look at teams or reps differently and they might look at what the, their pipeline coverage can be lower because they execute and they deliver with lower amounts of deals. But then you look into, they've got tenured reps on it and they know what they're doing versus managers new to the business. These are new rep. They'll need a little bit more, but it always lands on, yeah, 4X, 5X, 3X, whatever that number is. Um, and yeah, again, it's it's a little bit arbitrary and people will be listening to this and be going, yeah, but I have to do that anyway, right? That's just something I'm kind of stuck with. Or even if I'm a leader, as you mentioned, uh, you're in an organization, you probably don't have the autonomy to change the the sales you know, cycle, sales steps or whatever. 
Uh, but what I do like is you call out four metrics in your book that will help people see if they're on the right track. And I actually think this could be good from an AE perspective or a salesperson perspective and from a leadership perspective. Um, I guess, do you want to maybe dig into that and where, like where you came up with them and, and how you recommend people apply them? Yeah. I mean, so I call it the results formula and I honestly, I found this like way back early in my career. So it's somebody else's idea. I was never able to track down and properly attribute it to. So if somebody was the originator of that, call me, I'm sorry, but uh, it's, I call it the results formula. And it basically is this, you know, as a leader, we can measure everything. There's so much we can measure, right? Like my sales ops guy, I was, I'm a data nerd. Um, and my sales ops guy, you know, he had a spreadsheet at the end of every month and every quarter, like with all these metrics in it. But there's really only four core ones that contribute to your results. And I'll give you a little story around how to use it. But the four things are basically your results are a combination of four things. Number one, the number of qualified opportunities you're working on, right? So clearly you need opportunities. Number two yep. is how big they are. So the deal sizes. So how valuable is each one? The number three one, is your win rate, meaning how often out of those do you win? And then number four is your cycle length. How long does it take you to win those opportunities? Now, the so interesting thing about the data point that made a huge difference to me, and there's so many lessons around this. Like I, I find this to be so valuable, but number one is, you know, remember that whole thing around um, the, the year kicks off and your quotas are going up 20%. And well, how am I going to do that? I yeah. just worked my butt off. Well, it's very simple. When you look at the results formula, you could plug any data into it. And what you'll find is if you increase the number of qualified opportunities you have by 5%, right? So if you're working on 20 opportunities a year, 5% is one more deal. If you increase your average deal size by 5%, right? So if you're 42,000 or $40,000 yep. average deal size, that's 2K, like, all right, find a couple K. Uh, if your win rate, if you increase that by 5%, that's like winning one more deal. And then if you shrink your sales cycle length by 5%, all right? So increase the top line by five, which is number of deals, dollar, size, or dollar amount and win rate, and then reduce your cycle length by 5%. You will grow by 21%. Doesn't matter what company, what the data, if you do 10% across the top and minus 10% on the cycle length, it goes up by like 42%. That's number one is the, the point being that if 20% sounds so ominous, but tiny little tweaks will get you 20%. You won't even realize it. Yeah. The number two thing that I just want everybody to think about, especially if you're a leader, is don't get caught in the trap of just focusing on the silos of the data. Meaning, you know, I accidentally did that myself. Like I had a rep who was incredible at qualifying opportunities and always had a ton of them. I had another rep that not so much, right? He always had much less. In the end though, the rep that had much less had better results. And it was eye-opening for me to just think about, it's not the silos of how many qualified opportunities and you know, like the other rep's name was Casey. Like, Casey, you should qualify more opportunity. He was crushing Andy, who had tons. And it has everything to do with the ratios, right? That if you look at the combination of, hey, Andy's qualifying a ton of opportunities, but they're not very big, doesn't win very often, and it takes forever, versus Casey, who's got much less qualified opportunities, but they're bigger, wins more often, does it faster that that's the way that we should be looking at metrics. And when we do that the right way, it allows us to be much more effective coaches because we can see where the issues are and where the tweaks can be made versus just rewarding yeah. the person that generates the most opportunities. More, more, more means we're going to close more. I actually argue that it doesn't. So that's the results formula. Simply yeah. put, focus on those four metrics. And what I really like about that is no matter what environment you're working and selling in typically you'll have a crm or if you don't you'd be probably able to track that yourself but most of us have that these days and the other side of it doesn't matter what's whatever you know if you follow medpick or this that the other you can still track that and it's it's achievable improvements that you've clearly made you've broke that down and i'm sure people initially were on 20 percent, no way and then they hear that like oh i could probably do 20 percent more if i just focused on that and 
I guess we're focusing then on well, what are the skills, you know, where are you a little bit low and what skills can you acquire, be it from LinkedIn posts, you know, courses, podcasts, books, wherever that will help you with that. And actually it reminds me of um, Frank Betcher's How I Raised Myself from Failure to Success. And I remember yep. he speaks, uh, you've, oh, you've probably got a copy there. Uh, excellent. Yeah, I do. It's, I, uh, don't, I don't see it. It's a I classic. It. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's um, in that he speaks about the first 10 months of his career, he's completely failing at sales, decides to quit, then mm-hmm. goes back to the office to get his stuff. And lo and behold, there's a sales meeting going on. He's too embarrassed to leave. And the owner of the company who worked his way up says, if you meet the people every day, you'll be successful. He looked at his numbers and he saw he, his sales. He was making 70% of his sales in the first two meetings. Uh, and then after that, there was a massive decline. But he was spending half of his time going after the ones with a massive decline. So I also think if you look at your deals, the deal cycle, how long they're actually in your pipeline. I know we, we speak about that a lot. You hear that a lot. But be really honest with yourself, look at it. And if it's there a really long time, you probably should look to, to turf that out and get something new in. Uh, and again, simply looking through the lens of different metrics makes a big difference. Now, one thing that I think would be really helpful for uh, for sales leaders and for salespeople, account executives, is how you are transparent about commercials up front. So I've often been in a position where I'm selling something could be Let's say it's a hundred k, could be a half million. Let's say it's let's say it's big numbers, and that's that's going to take a lot of commitment on the other side. And I know we're kind of you know, you know, build up the value and hold back the price, and then all of a sudden, you know, if if you're not aligned, that can be shocking. But I really, really like how in the transparency sale you speak about that, and I think it would be great if you could share a little bit of, you know, how do I you know share commercials yeah, at the beginning of a process. It's funny that you say that because like I'm. Uh, when we're done with this, I'm teaching a class. Uh, the negotiation program that I teach is the most popular thing that I teach. And it's it's based on this, just for everybody kind of background. Um, I, I just always thought it was weird growing up in sales that I needed a different personality to negotiate than I did to sell. Like, I don't know if you feel that, but it's, you know, sales for me was always about, uh, my goal is to help you achieve optimal outcomes, maybe achieve more than you ever thought possible. And like, that's my role is to help you. So we build trust all the way to the goal line. Customer says, yes, I want to go with you. And you subconsciously say, all right, cool. I'm going to start lying to you now. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what a good deal <laughs> yeah. is. Um, my, my focus on your outcomes, that was before, this is now. And I learned everything I know about negotiating from former FBI hostage negotiators. What? Like that, that to me was always crazy and felt very uncomfortable. And, you know, we talk about sales has changed so much. I don't think sales has changed as much as we think. However, in one way that I believe it truly has changed is this as a service or subscription economy where, you know, the deal is no longer the peak of the selling effort, right? The deal is merely an early milestone on the path to customers who stay. You know, they, they yeah. buy, they stay, they buy more, and they become advocates for you. I had stumbled upon this idea of what's called transparent negotiating probably 15 years ago. Um, I was not a comfortable negotiator. I wasn't good with the, wait, did his eye just twitch? I think he's lying, like that kind of crap. Um, and so I had walked into a big high stakes negotiation, but this process works for the smallest of the small to the biggest of the big. It doesn't matter. And I was confronted with a whole team of procurement people from a massive oil services company. I I didn't know what to do. I kind of just like threw up, basically transparently played my cards face up. I just explained to them, hey, that this price that you have in front of you, it's based on the four things that drive our business, right? And those four things are volume, meaning how much you buy, right? The more you buy, the better. Number two is the timing of cash, meaning turns out we like money. The faster you pay us, the better it is for us. And that's reflected in your pricing. Number three, length of commitment. The longer you commit to our stuff, our volume, our product, services, technology, the better it is for us. And that's also reflected in your pricing. And then the fourth thing is our ability to predict or the timing of the deal. Being able to predict is something valuable from an investor perspective, from us to be able to resource, and we need to be able to resource this opportunity too. I threw my cards face up, 
when they asked for a discount, that became the basis of the discussion. Say, hey, remember the four things I shared? Well, maybe we've got an opportunity for you to get a little closer. Can you commit to more volume? Can you pay us faster? Can you commit longer? Can you help us forecast? And suddenly, instead of eroding trust at the goal line, we were building it. We were getting value for every dollar or concession we were giving away instead of giving it in the form of charity to their bottom line. And then our deals infinitely became more accurate too. That was a big contributor to my forecast accuracy is mutual alignment with clients where they had skin in the game. It wasn't like a, you know, yep. a, a, a retailer saying, today only 30% off out of nowhere, right? You've just established that that's your new price. That over the 15 years is something that I've developed and built out, but it's head slappingly easy. Like you barely even need me to help you do this. It's just your pricing and every for-profit company in the world's pricing is based on how much you buy, how fast they pay, how long they commit, and when they sign. You can use that as a framework. Now, the last thing I'll leave you with there, though, is I also believe that AI, you know, there's debates about what impact it's going to have. I just think that eventually AI is going to expose pricing models. And I believe that if companies are getting better rates based on how good they are at negotiating. I don't think that's sustainable. I just think that we need a simple framework for the way that we talk about price, the way we propose price. So then when we get to that goal line and negotiate it, we've got a framework that allows the customer to negotiate their own deal, not only initially, but for upsells, cross-sells and renewals, everything gets yeah. a lot easier and there's integrity and confidence in your pricing. Yeah, it definitely feels like there's more transparency, more fairness going to come into that space for sure. And um, what I love, what I think is really key for for people to take away is uh, knowing what your levers are, being confident and sharing them, you know, openly and honestly uh, with them. Um, and from there, that will drive a real conversation yes. where you find out um, rather than just you know, maybe assuming, oh, I'm, there's a 10% discount or there's a 20% discount or, or whatever it is, um, you know, maybe that upfront price does not matter. Maybe it's a payment term. Maybe it's a semi-annual thing because of cash flow or because of amortization, whatever it may be, um, or it can be something something else completely. They may be more um, concerned about, is my team going to be successful? Am I going to have the support that I need when this is implemented? Actually, I want to pay a bit more because I want your best guys to be supporting my best guys back to your, you know, sales is the science of a service. So it's, it's that open dialogue to understand what's important as well. And, um, but having that conversation up front drives a lot of credibility. Uh, and I guess the key thing then is, um, because it's real, you actually stick to it. So again, exactly. you've exactly. got that credibility later on when yeah. some, if a crazy ask is thrown at you by a CFO or by a, head of procurement, well, maybe there's a point or two you can concede, but there's not going to be the 10 or the 20% because you've been transparent up front. And that just, that will make your champion much more confident of putting you into those meetings or putting you forward as a preferred supplier versus versus not, because it's it's also their credibility on the line, right? They're, they're betting, some cases, betting their career on you. So it is a big thing. Um, I know you we know, don't have too much time left. I've got a couple of questions. It's going to okay. shoot through maybe rapid fire style. Yes. Okay, um, cool. Yeah. I've so, got so much um, I can talk about with the negotiation, but let's keep going. And I know. Yeah. I just want to do keep going and digging into so. it. But, uh, first question. Um, what is your number one tip for prospecting that somebody can take action on straight away? Um, I, you know, as a CRO, um, Keep in mind, like I used to get 100 to 150 emails every day. Um, and I was in 30 to 35 meetings per week. All right. So just think about that when you're having empathy for the people that you're reaching out to. I had to check my email. It was kind of like, you know, the instant lottery scratch off tickets. Like you, you got to check because there could be a winner in there, but odds are it's a bunch yep. of losers. That was kind of the relationship I had with my, my inbox. Now, there's a picture that I show in the transparency sale of my inbox. And you'll see that I, I just kind of like did a screenshot of all of the emails that I'd gotten in one day. They all look exactly the same, right? They all started with, you know, some kind of gimmicky subject line. And then they all start with, I wanted to, or I just wanted to. My, my tip for everybody is like, that looks like just white noise. 
there's such an easy opportunity for you to stand out like a beacon in the night in the inbox. A is to think about your inbox. We as executive, we're looking to understand whether or not these emails are here to help me or to sell me. And to stand out to help me is to understand what my priorities are. As a sales leader, my priorities were my team, my customers, my prospects. Can you, in those first 10 words, because you've got to remember, I can see the preview, and that was what was determining whether I was going to open it, get rid of the eyes and we's and make that first 10 words personalized and valuable. Personalized, meaning I feel like it could have only really been sent to me. And valuable, meaning make me smarter about my business, not yours. And there's simple ways to do that. I, I, I've got tons of examples of it, but the point being, if you're talking about yourself and what you wanted, you could be saying, I just wanted to give you a million dollars. I would never get to it because there just wasn't enough time in the day for me to consume all of that crap, right? I'd hit select yeah. all delete on the I just wanted tos, make it about me, make me smarter about my business, not yours. Show me in those first 10 words that you're here to make me smarter versus about my business, not yours. And you'll stand out like a beacon in the night. One last thing on that. How do you do that? How do you have empathy for the people that you're selling to? Well, if you're selling to salespeople, you probably have sales leaders right down the hall you could ask. Have them show you their inbox. In my uh, two companies ago, we were selling to marketers. Every two weeks, we would have either a CMO or a digital marketer come into our, our sales meeting. And we'd always do, show us your inbox. And they're like, ah, here's the stuff that looks like crap. And here's the ones that stood out, right? You can gain empathy for the people that you're selling to so quickly with either internal resources or your customers that are willing to share and want to see you be successful. Those terms, show me your inbox. Yeah, I really, really like that. Empathy and I think you've given people a new way to think about that outreach. You're interrupting somebody's day. So can you make it worth the interruption? Is it the bridge to where they want to go? Really, exactly. really like that. Um, from a sales perspective, what is the one sales tip you would love to give to the masses? I, again, it just, it's transparency sells better than perfection. Just keep in Perfect. mind, I bet all of you do this. You all read reviews when a salesperson or when a website's acting as a salesperson, right? But I bet you, you all read the negative reviews first. 85% of us do that. And a product on a five-star scale that has an average review score between a 4.2 and a 4.5, it's actually optimal for purchase conversion, meaning product that's got negative reviews right under it sells at a higher conversion rate than a product that is nothing but perfect five-star reviews. It's not just when a website's acting as a salesperson. It turns out all the behavioral science tells us that it's also in B2B or human-to-human. My suggestion to you is this, to lead with what you give up to be great at your core. If you start exposing to the customers what you're not the greatest at, what a competitor might be better at, lead with that and position your solutions as a 4-2 to a 4-5. Remember, we as buyers, we don't buy when we're convinced. We buy when we can predict. Help your buyers predict. And I'll leave you with my favorite sales quote of all time. It's from 1921, a guy named Arthur Dunn in his book, Scientific Selling and Advertising. I love this quote. And he's got a whole page dedicated to his book. And it just says this, if the truth won't sell it, don't sell it. Right? It's freaking beautiful. But the, the, so for everybody, embrace transparency. When you lead with transparency, I'm telling you, sales cycles will speed up. Win rates will go up. You'll qualify in better qualify out faster, and you'll make it harder on your competitors to message against you. And due to the proliferation of feedback and everything we do buy and experience now, you got to do it anyway. So now is the time to embrace it. Yeah. And as uh, I mean, fantastic saying, and as the, the months and the years pass, you'll end up with a lot of clients who've had wins, successes from what you've delivered them. And, and you'll still be able to, you know, WhatsApp them or give them a call. It's, it's exactly. really interesting exactly. when you lead that way. Yeah. Um, I know you, we're, we're short on time and you've managed a lot of uh, reps or overseen a lot of reps. Uh, and as we spoke about, I suppose, before the show and Hinza at the, at the beginning, things are starting to turn a little bit and people are now starting to work towards promotion and maybe want to, to progress. Uh, what's the one tip you'd give somebody who is, you know, maybe looking to get promoted to that next level in their sales career? 
Well, I mean, there's there's lots of advice out there that I agree with. Uh, the one thing that I would just just reinforce a million times is it's very hard. Like if you get into an Uber and you don't tell the Uber driver where you're wanting to go, it's very hard for them to help you get there. My turning point in my career was a short drive with my CEO when I joined a company as a director of sales ops back in 2006. We were driving to an event. He asked me why I was there. I told him, hey, I want to learn. My goal is to run a sales organization someday. And this is what I'm trying to do. When that opportunity happened, I was the first one that he considered. So with all the other advice out there, do that. But nothing is more important than let those people that can help you get you there know where you're headed because there's no way for them to help you get where you're going if they have no idea where you want to go. Perfect. Amazing. Yeah, put it out there. Absolutely great. And I'm going to try to uh, pin you to one book and we'll wrap now. What is your favorite sales book or the sales book you would recommend people check out? Gosh, I mean, I mean, aside from my own, I guess. Um, I, I don't read and current you books. Check his, you check out Todd's books. They're great. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I don't read current books. I, I just don't anymore. Um, the Frank Becker book that you mentioned is fantastic. It's very motivating. Um, but I love um, that scientific selling and advertising from Arthur Dunn in 1921. And then there's one from 1912, The Art of Selling by Arthur Sheldon. It's foundational stuff. Yeah. And it is so service oriented from a sales profession. I just love those books and I'm thinking about trying to figure out how to republish them. Oh, that'd be pretty cool. And if people want to dig in more, find out a bit more about Transparency Sales, Transparency Leader, Todd, how, how can they reach you? Yeah, I mean, the two easiest ways, toddcaponi.com, it's got all kinds of resources. There's no gates, just go for it. And then if you want to follow along or connect with me on LinkedIn, I share a lot of my nonsense there. Let me know where you heard me, though. That helps, and I uh, would love to be a connection with you. Cool. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Todd. Uh, look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thank you, Paul. That was a blast. Thanks for listening to the Work Before the Work podcast. For show notes and additional resources, go to paulcaffrey.com forward slash podcast. If you got value from the episode, then take out your phone, give a rating in your podcast app only one click and if you have 10 seconds to spare then add the sales tip that resonated most and how you think it will help your sales performance this really really helps the show thanks again and i'll catch you in the next episode